0: Um, if this is your first time with us, my name is Justice Froman. I'm the pastor here, and you know I'm glad that you chose to, to be with us and worship with us. And I've already enjoyed our time together. I don't know about you, but uh, man, that was a sweet time singing to the Lord. And, um, and hey, while we're like greeting people and welcoming people, you know, there's uh, our extended Bayou family online, but then also, hold on, hold on, also... Um, every week, these teachings are being used to serve uh, the women who are in the jail and our local jail ministry. So, can we just say, "Hey, everyone, there. We love you, and uh, we consider you a part of our family, and uh, we're glad you're tuning in today." So, now, um, last week we we studied uh, the Exodus. We studied how God sent Moses to a free. Um, the Israelites from Egypt and they have they have come uh, across the Red Sea and we studied the Passover how um, how God was sending this 10th plague to kill the firstborn son of every family but he provided provision for someone to substitute in your place and that substitute was a spotless lamb And if you slain the spotless lamb and applied the blood to the door of your house, the uh, Lord would pass over you and you would be saved in the same way. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world shed his blood for us. And if you apply the blood of the lamb to your life, you will be saved and receive eternal life. Now, um, what happened now is they're beginning to enter into the wilderness and God is, is, is setting up and distinguishing His nation and His people. And He gives them uh, the Ten Commandments here at Mount Sinai. So let's read this together. We'll pray and then we'll unpack it as we go. So if you're in Exodus chapter 20, just say, come on. on. All right. Verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I the Lord... Your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of your Lord, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Holy. the Sabbath day, and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbors this is the word of the lord let's pray together heavenly father i just thank you god that you are with us and that your presence among us and your holy spirit is at work to teach us and so i just pray that you would in these moments instruct us and teach us from your word by your spirit that uh, we would give attention to your word and we would receive what you'll have for us today i pray you'd guide my speech lord and that as a result of our time together, we would uh, stir our affections for you and for one another. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So we see that there's this scene on uh, Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai, and what happens here is uh, if you flip back to chapter 19 uh, and verse maybe 17, in chapter 19, verse 17, we get the scene, okay? Okay, so this is a terrifying moment. This is, uh, they're at the foot of the mountain. God's presence descends on the mountain as in fire and smoke. And then the Lord begins to speak in thunder. So everybody's listening. This is significant here. I find it interesting. You didn't know the name of our town is in the Bible. It's right there in verse 18. Like the smoke of a kiln. And that's why we're, we live in the kiln, right? It's where the presence of the Lord is. And, uh, and that's why you moved here. But anyways, um, so here we have the scene. God's speaking. God's giving these Ten Commandments. The first couple of verses here in chapter 20 are kind of the a, a prelude to the covenant or to the commandment. He's distinguishing, making a commandment with His people here. And in verse 1 of 20 says, And God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We see some beautiful things about the Lord here as he reveals who he is. Who is the God that is making this covenant, that is giving these commandments? And here it is. The Lord, first off, reveals. It's not on the screen. These aren't points. It's just free stuff for you. The Lord reveals. That means that he spoke. He spoke. It says in verse 1, and God spoke these words, saying, So, unlike the gods of Egypt that didn't speak, that didn't really do anything, um, God speaks, he reveals himself through words. And that's what's unique about the Ten Commandments. Why do why are the Ten Commandments rise above all of the rest of the 613 commandments in the Torah? So the first five books of the Bible is what's known as the law, the whole thing, first five books, the law. And in the law are 613 commands. But um, throughout uh, Jewish history and church history, the Ten Commandments have risen above all of the rest as special, as unique. And why is that? Uh, Two reasons I'll give you. One is because God spoke these commandments directly to the people, not through a mediator not through Moses. Did you, did you catch this? He spoke directly to the people. Look at 19 verse 1. Um, I'm sorry, chapter 20 verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, down to verse 19 of chapter 20, it says, and Moses said, you speak to us and we will listen. You speak to us. God spoke to us. And you might be like, well, that doesn't really convince me. Well, I'll flip over to Deuteronomy. You can just listen if you want. But in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 says... uh, Let's go back to verse 11. He says, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire of the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, clouds of gloom. Verse 12 says this, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire and heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice... And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. So the first reason why the Ten Commandments rises above the rest is because God spoke them directly to the people from the mountain. All the other 613 commandments, he he, he used Moses as a mediator to write them. Secondly, because God wrote them with his own finger. Chapter 31, we just saw in Deuteronomy that he wrote them on stone. But at 31, it says that he uh, wrote them with his finger, the finger of God on stone. And uh, the rest of the commandments are given through Moses, but these are given directly by God. These ten commandments are special. So, number one about God, he reveals. The number two thing is that God, the Lord relates. The Lord relates. In verse 2, he says... He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, as we've learned, is, is the covenant name of God, the personal name of God, the name Yahweh. So he's revealing this personal name, but he wants to relate them. He says, I am the Lord, your God. This is personal. He wants a real, intimate, personal relationship with his people. And then finally, so the Lord reveals, the Lord relates, and and finally the Lord redeems, or he acts. Look at verse 2 again. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he wants to remind you, I am the God who just brought you, who just redeemed you, who just delivered you from slavery in Egypt. See, the redemption of his people is the foundation for these commandments. They don't um, have to obey the commandments to be redeemed. They obey the commandments because they are redeemed. And uh, th- But this redemption here, the, the exodus, the coming out of slavery is just the first step in their life, their new life with God. It's just the first step. And now he's going to begin to give them instructions, commandments to learn how to live from this point on. And uh, they're going to He's calling them to live differently, completely differently, than the pagan nations around them, than the pagan nation that they came from. He's calling them to live distinct lives. And many, many people in church, they have this idea that uh, conversion is like the finish line. If I can just get them converted, if I can just get them to believe. But really, conversion, baptism, that's the starting line. That's when everything begins. And then you go on this journey with God, becoming more like Him, learning how to live distinct and different. So what I love about the Ten Commandments, as we're just getting started, and you might say we are not getting through all ten today if this is the pace we're at, but what I love about the Ten Commandments is that God gives the commandments in an environment of grace, of mercy. It was a gracious, gracious act of redemption to deliver them from slavery in Egypt, and now he's like, here's how to live. Here's how to live the best life you can live. So he's now going to give them two tablets. And um, some believe, about these two tablets, some believe that um, there's five commandments written on each tablet. Um, Others believe that uh, both tablets have all ten commandments written on them. It's like we need a copy just in case you misplace one, okay? So there's all ten on each tablet. And then the the belief that I kind of lean towards is uh, is this one. That there are probably four commandments written on the first tablet and six commandments written on the second. The first four on uh, on the first tablet and the second six on the second tablet. And the reason I believe that is because of the content of the tablets, the content of the commandments. Um, see, the first two, the first four, I'm sorry, are God word, and the second six are man word. So these, in these commandments is uh, the idea of supreme devotion to God and sincere affection for others. We are to revere God and respect people. And really that's what Jesus said when he was asked, hey, what's the greatest commandment? In all of the Bible, Jesus responded and said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two depend all of the law and the prophets. So you can summarize all of the law, In love God and love people. And so the first four are vertical. The second six are horizontal. And so that's what we're going to unpack today. Um, So here's the first tablet. First, um, love God. Love God. And uh, so commandment number one. And we're going to have to move quickly. And commandment number one is worship the Lord only. Worship the Lord only. Look back at verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. So number one thing is I am your God. I'm your only God. Now, when he says you shall have no other gods before me, he's not uh, endorsing or accepting polytheism. He's not saying it's okay to worship other gods as long as I'm your favorite. It's okay to worship other things as long as you just keep me at the top. As long as you just keep me number one. No, uh, what he's saying here is when it says before me, that literally means in my face. So he's saying, you shall have no other gods where I can see them. And God can see everything, right? So he's like, don't have any other gods. Don't worship any other gods. Um, but uh, whether it's real or imaginary, do not bow down to it as God. Now you might think, I don't have any other gods. I don't have any gods in my life. Well, Jesus is like, well, look a little closer. In the New Testament, Jesus pointed out, hey, um, you know, be, be careful with love for money. Because you cannot serve both the master of mammon or money and God. You've got to serve one or the other that money itself can become a god in your life. We, can, we have gods of pleasure or power or fame or even yourself or you have whatever in your life has the priority in your thoughts and in your words and in your deeds maybe that's a maybe that's a god in your life and what he's saying here is that god's people owe ultimate allegiance to him and him alone Now he's not saying there's really any great other options. He's not even saying other gods exist because the only other gods are false gods. So he's like, worshiping a false god is like, well, look at this. In in Psalm uh, 115, David says this, uh, talking about these idols, these false gods, says um, their idols are silver and gold, uh, the the work of human hands. This is Psalm 115, four and, and five. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. So he's like, hey, these gods are useless. That's what they are. That worshiping another god, having another idol is like hugging a mannequin. It's it's like it's fake. It's pointless. Not very comforting. So he says, worship the Lord only. And then he goes on to verse and and number two, do not worship idols. Look at verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image uh, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them to serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to their children, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So he's saying, do not make a carved image of a false gods like the Egyptians did. So firstly, don't don't make any false gods. Uh, No images like things in heaven. He's talking about the sky here, not about a spiritual place. Nothing in heaven, nothing in the sky, nothing on earth, nothing in the water. Don't make any images to worship. You might say, is this a prohibition against art? Are we not allowed to paint things or have statues or anything of that nature? No, it's not saying that at all. Um, What are these images for? He says, you shall not bow down to them to serve them. So we aren't allowed to create images or, or, or carvings or statues that we bow down to, that we serve, that we worship why is that why is that because he says here i am a jealous god i am a jealous god now now uh, that word jealous in in modern english is not really the best translation because um, jealousy has always a negative connotation with it in our in our language Um, the more a more accurate maybe translation that would communicate this point is i am a zealous god I am jealous or zealous. And uh, one commentator noted that jealousy does not refer to an emotion so much as to an activity. In this case, an activity of violence and vehemence, whatever that is, that springs from the rupture of a personal bond as exclusive as that of the marriage bond. No husband who truly loved his wife could endure to share her with another man. No more will God share Israel with a rival. So what he's saying is, not like I'm jealous, like, oh, I can't believe you did that, my feelings are hurt, oh no. Like, jealous, like, if you go worship other gods, I'm going to do something about it. I am zealous about fidelity here. I'm serious about this, he says. He says, I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me wow now is he talking about generational curses here is that what he's talking about generational curses that somehow i inherited some curse from my great grandfather and i've got to break that curse and Not necessarily, that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is that the consequences of your sin, of disobedience to God, has generational consequences. That your sin doesn't just affect you, it affects you and your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandchildren. And part of the effect of that is that many times your kids and grandkids emulate you. And so, if you are worshiping other gods, if you are not devoted to the Lord alone, then your kids and your grandkids are going to follow in your footsteps. And your disobedience will have generational consequences. So he's like, watch out. But, however, look, look, he says obedience has an even stronger effect. He says in verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So although there's a limited number of generations that your sin will affect, he says your obedience to God, your worship of the one true God, is going to have an even greater lasting effect. When he says to thousands, that is not, he's not trying to communicate a number that you can count. That's like if you said a gazillion. He's saying uh, myriads of, of people will be blessed by your faithfulness to God. And so he says, don't make any idols to bow down to them or worship them. Um, But this command is not just to create carved images that are false. This is also a prohibition against creating any uh, image of the Lord himself to worship. So he says, don't even try to make an image of me and the reason is uh, because an attempt to depict God will not only fall short, but then will distort worshipers' understanding of God. And so because God is spirit and invisible, he's greater and larger than any image. Whenever you try to portray him in image, you're immediately distorting who he is and therefore giving a false representation of him, um, a misrepresentation of him. See, God is spirit, James uh, 4.24 says. God is invisible, and uh, he wants to stay that way. So don't don't make any images of him. Um, Does this mean that we can't have pictures of Jesus? Uh, You know, I don't know. Let your conscience guide you on that. You know, some people say like even movies of Jesus and that kind of thing are, are breaking this commandment. I don't think so because we're not worshiping those images. We're not seeking to worship those images. You know, you have right whenever all these commandments are being given at the bottom of the mountain, his people are like creating a golden calf. And, uh, and what they were doing was, and, um, and you're going to end up wor- worshiping false things. All right, so do not create any idols not create any idols. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 7. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so taking the name of the Lord in vain covers any careless or irreverent use of the name Yahweh. Any careless or irreverent use of the name Yahweh. This includes flippant or frivolous use, um, like people you know, OMG and, uh, and just casually saying the name of the Lord. This includes blasphemous use, like using the name of the Lord in a curse word or as a curse word. And you've heard it. And so it includes that. It includes hypocritical use. So it is Um, be careful when you swear an oath to the Lord. Hand on the Bible, promise to God, you know, I'm going to do this or I won't do this. Like that is a dangerous thing to do. And whenever you make an oath or a promise on the name of the Lord and then you act otherwise, that's taking the name of the Lord in vain. We also have to understand that, that taking the name of the Lord in vain is more than just speaking His name because the name is... Uh, the a full representation of the character of a person, and so taking his name is I am I am uh, claiming Christ, but yet I'm living in vain. I'm I'm not living in character with the Lord, and so I'm taking the names the name of the Lord in vain. In vain means to empty it of its contents or of its meaning. So I'm emptying the name of God. One person said the name of God should never be spoken, written, uttered, or sung in any empty, frivolous, or insincere way. The, uh, the Israelites, the Jewish people, would only utter his name once a year. The high priest would say his name once a year. Now, I, think, I don't think that's what he wants. I think he revealed himself and gave us a personal name because he wants us to call him by it. Um, but we should not let it come lightly off of our tongue because his name is holy and special and unique and should only be said with, with all seriousness and reverence. So do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, number four, remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath, verse 8. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner, or whoever is within your gates. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So he says, hey, uh, take a Sabbath, take a rest. Work for six days and rest for one. Now that had been very different than what they would have experienced with the seven-day work week as slaves in Egypt. And so he's like, this is a, I know you're used to working seven days a week, but this is a new life. You're going to live distinct uh, among, uh, among the people. And um, so he says, uh, this is a day of rest and of worship. And this whole command speaks to the Lord's demand on time, on time, that, we, that he has um, a devotion of time in our lives. One day a week we give back to the Lord. This expresses a dependence on God, that my life is not primarily dependent on my ability to produce, that my life is not only about productivity, that I am dependent on God, that if I take a day off, he's going to keep it going. Things are going to work out anyways. You might say, well, I don't need a day off. You know, I don't. I feel refreshed, I feel good. It's actually better for me to keep working. I don't need a day off. And it's like, well, look, the reason we have a day off is because The Lord gave that example. He created everything in six days. He rested on the seventh. How many of you know that the Lord was not after six days of creation like, whew, I'm pooped. You know, I don't know if I could handle one more day. You know, no. He's like, he did it as an example to us. Whether or not you feel like you need rest, he's like, take a day off. Take a day off. And so the circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham previously. He gave circumcision as a sign for that covenant. And then as he's making this covenant with Moses, S- Sabbath is the sign of the covenant with Moses. And, uh, and then in the New Testament, whenever we are in Christ, baptism really is the sign of the covenant, the new covenant with Christ. Um, but uh, the new covenant... In the New Covenant, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. So is this binding upon us? Well, in the New Covenant, Jesus really fulfills this, where he says in Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4, 9 through 11, says this, So then, there remains Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What he's saying is that Christ is our Sabbath rest for the believer. I mean, this is what Jesus said when he's speaking to crowds. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will be your rest. And then uh, Colossians 2, verse 16 through 17, gives us some instruction because there was this debate in the church, do we still have to observe the Sabbath or not? Do we have to do it or do we not have to do it? And this is what he says in Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. For they are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so what he's saying here is that that, um, if you want to observe the Sabbath every week, yeah, do that. Praise the Lord for that. If you don't, that's okay too. He says, but don't judge each other for the decision you make around it. We have freedom in, in Christ to make this decision. We have to know that the Sabbath is a picture and the substance is Christ. So you decide for yourself. You might say, well, why don't we as Christians worship on Saturday, which was the true Sabbath? And the reason we don't is because in the early church, they began to, to move from worshiping on the Sabbath on Saturday to worshiping on Sunday or the first day of the week or the Lord's Day uh, to remember and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything including the day that they would worship. We see this in Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, verse two, Revelation one, verse 10, where they began to gather to meet on the first day of the week. And so um, now, so we're not bound by um, the Old Testament command for the Sabbath as they were. Uh, however, um, I believe it is still a healthy practice for the believer. And, uh, and the reason is you got to understand that, that the commandments reveal to us God's character and God's desire for his people. He's, he's helping them know how to live in line with how they were created. And the fact that the Sabbath was instituted by God at the very beginning Um, it predates the Mosaic Law. And it seems like it is a healthy pattern for God's people to work for six days and to take a day off. Remember that Jesus said that the, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. That Sabbath was made for man. It was made as a gift for people to be rested and refreshed. And so uh, in our day, our kind of work schedules um, generally look a little bit different. So some of the best advice I've been given around Sabbath, just a practical Sabbath, is to work for your employer for five days, work for yourself for one day, and then rest for one day. That's working for six days, five days for your employer, you got one day for yourself to you do all your honey-do list, your house stuff, your auto maintenance, all your stuff for yourself. And take a day of rest and worship every week. And um, uh, a couple years ago, I began to do this, and it has been super helpful. Generally, my Sabbath is on Monday, okay? So Sundays, I'm working. I'm working on Sundays. This could be your Sabbath, but it's, it's a work day for me. Um, Tuesday through Friday, I'm working for the church. Saturday is my one day to work for myself, but Monday is a sacred day. It's a holy day in my house. It's a day where I don't work. And it's the furthest away from the next Sunday, so I can even have a mental break from thinking about sermon preparation and all those things. And it has been so healthy and helpful to the life of myself and my family and my soul, and it helps sustain us. You know, I, I preached a sermon in the past that, that said the solution for stress is rhythms of rest you know when Jesus said come to me all you are weary and heavy laden you're stressed you're anxious rhythms of rest like have daily times with the Lord have weekly times of rest with the Lord and if you feel like your life is just boom 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 busy 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 stress 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 Man, try and take in a day off every week to rest and worship the Lord. That's all I'll say about this. Let's move on to the second tablet. So that's the first tablet. And if you notice, all of those commandments, the first four commandments, are, are all vertical. They're geared towards our relationship with the Lord. Now the second tablet is this. Love people. The second tablet. Love people. And... Uh, And so the first command in our commands towards others, the horizontal commands, is honor your parents. Honor your parents. Verse 12 says, honor uh, your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Why is this command, the command to honor your father and your mother, why is this command the first command in uh, the second set uh, in your commands towards relationships with people. Um, I believe this because everybody has parents, right? He's gonna give us some more commands. You might not have a spouse to commit adultery on. In the place we live, you might not even have neighbors, right? You might live so far out in the woods, you don't, you've never even seen a neighbor, but everyone has parents, young and old have parents. And um, it's also not just a command to young children, although it's a parent's favorite verse to quote, and a child's least favorite verse to hear. Honor your father and your mother. But it's not just a command to young children, it's a command to people of all ages to honor their parents. And I think in a culture, our culture, where um, where the elderly are despised and youthfulness is worshipped, like the amount of stuff people inject into their bodies to try to make themselves look like they're still young. It's like, just embrace age. <laughs> but in a, in a society where youthfulness is worshipped, but age is despised, we are commanded to honor those who have given us life. And there's something learned and gained in age, that you can't just learn in a book, that technology is not going to provide us, and we should respect and honor the wisdom of our parents. To honor means uh, to prize highly, to care for, to show respect for, now, we got to understand that he's not saying honor your parents if they are honorable. You might be like, no, my parents, they're not, I don't have good parents. But this command is to everyone, whether or not your parents are honorable or not, whether you had good parents or bad parents, this is for everyone. You don't have to like them. Um, it's, this is not even a command to obey them. But we must honor them. And we don't honor them because of them. We honor them because honoring them is honoring the Lord. It's honoring the Lord. Um, Also, a reason why this is this command here is that um, the family is the single most foundational institution in society. So if he's creating this new nation, he, he understands, God understands that the family is the foundation for any healthy society, that we have to have healthy families to have healthy communities, to have healthy churches. And, um, but then also, honoring your parents is the training ground for honoring all authorities that you will encounter in life. So if you learn to honor your parents, then you will be someone who honors your teachers and honors the uh, police officers and honors um, your employer, right? It's a training ground for all of rest of life, the home. And this commandment is repeated in the New Testament. So this is binding on us today. Ephesians 6, 2 and 3 says, honor your father and your mother. This is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the the land. Now my youth pastor would say the reason why it will go well with you because the fifth commandment, you know, five, is if you don't obey, I'll put one of these on you, you know. Wow and uh, honor, dishonoring your parents, that's a dangerous thing to do, right? And this is so serious, it, it, is, um, uh, it, it was a capital offense. If you were, go read the Old Testament, there's some wild stuff in there. And like you had a disrespectful kid, let's get rid of him, he just disappeared. Um, and so, <laughs> this is serious, this is serious, yeah. In the New Testament, it's in the, it, like, in the list of like, people who are not, will not inherit the kingdom of God, like murderers and thieves and all those things, disobedient to parents. You're like, what? That's in there? Yeah, yeah. So parents, the fact that there is a command for your children to honor their parents means that it's okay to um, enforce obedience in your home. It is good for their soul. Okay, let's move on. Okay, so honor your parents. Do not murder, okay? Now, if you're thinking of killing your kids, here's the command for you. Do not murder. Look at verse 13. I think it says just that. Do not murder. Um, So here he's protecting the sanctity of human life and um, that it's different from any other form of life. Notice he's not, uh, it's not a, he's not forbidding killing, because some people will say, like vegetarians, you know, the you know, Bible says do not kill, so you shouldn't kill animals. No, that's not what he's saying. Um, eat your steak. Um, he's saying, so he's not saying we can't kill animals. He's not saying uh, we can't rightfully defend ourselves. He's not, this is not a prohibition against self-defense. There's actually some laws that protect your ability to uh, defend yourself in the Bible. Uh, He's not saying that we can't defend our nation. So he's not saying as a military to defend your nation that you can't kill. That's not what he's saying either. He's not even saying that we can't exercise capital punishment uh, for appropriate crimes. See, the Bible distinguishes all these different forms of killing murder and second-degree murder and manslaughter and all of that is laid out in the Bible and so if, if, if it's an accident that's different. Here he's saying do not unjustly uh, end another human life and since all humans are created in the image of God, the imago Dei, the image of God, Murder is not only an attack on that person, it's an attack on God himself. And so God is the giver of life and the taker of life. Do not take God's job. Don't try to be God, okay? Do not murder. All life is sacred. This is also restated in the New Testament. And if you're feeling like, man, at least this one I'm good on. Just wait till Jesus gets involved. (laughs) Because Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew 5.21 says, You have heard it said uh, to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Like, really, Jesus? I can't even be angry about it. And so here he's like, hey, be careful. Jesus is upping it from an action to an attitude. And don't even have an attitude of hatred and anger towards your brother or you are guilty of murder. Number seven, do not commit adultery. Do not, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is any sexual activity with someone who is not your spouse. And uh, here God is protecting the institution of marriage. And see, God created marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime, that the two become one flesh, and anything outside of that is sin. It doesn't matter if it's consensual. Okay, like, hey, we agreed to add this other person in. It doesn't matter if it's consensual. God does not consent. It is sin. Do not commit adultery. It fractures the marital relationship. And and, and you might be like, got it. I got this one. Oh, here comes Jesus again. Matthew 5, 27. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery uh, with her in his heart. So Jesus is like, hey, hey, if you're watching movies or videos, viewing images that are causing you to look lustfully after another woman, you're guilty of this sin of adultery. Again, it's more than just the action. He's looking for more than just external compliance and obedience. He's looking for internal new heart change. How's your heart? How's your attitude? Help us, Lord. Number eight, do not steal. Do not steal. Um, so this is a protection against, uh, uh, on personal property. And a protection on personal property is essential to a healthy society. You cannot have people just taking other people's things. So you shall not steal. But notice that he doesn't say you shall not steal anything particular. He doesn't say you shall not steal money. We shall not steal property. That the command to not steal applies to all types of categories. Do not steal someone's time. Do not steal uh, money, of course, or property. But don't steal someone's happiness. Like, don't be someone who steals from others, who takes things that are not yours. He goes on. uh, Number nine: Do not lie. Do not lie. The Bible says it this way, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so this is like legal language. If you're going to come and make an accusation against someone in a court of law, you cannot do so falsely. This is where we get our laws on perjury in our nation, is is this type of thing, that we cannot bear false witness. Now one way that they would safeguard against against false witness is that If uh, you were the primary witness against someone, you would have to be the lead executioner in their death. And then um, if you were lying about them, uh, you would incur the blood guilt of killing them. Now if they found out that you were lying about them, you would get the punishment that they were going to get. And so you think that would end perjury? (laughs) <laughs> right? If you lie about someone on the stand, you'll get the sentence they were going to get. Um, yeah, they cut that, that cut. <laughs> so, so then, although this language here is um, primarily geared towards, like, the legal system, uh, more broadly, it applies to all forms of lying. And uh, lying is something that God hates. And the way we know that is because in Proverbs, Um, God gives us a list, six things that the Lord hates, seven is an abomination to him. Proverbs 6, verse 17 says, one of the things he hates is a lying tongue. But then he says it in a different way again in verse 19, where he says, a false witness who breathes out lies. So in the top seven things that God hates, the whole idea of lying is in there twice. So he says, yeah, uh, we should be Honest people, people who tell the truth. God hates lying because he is truth. And to lie is to act outside of his character. And is to act in the character of his enemy, the devil, who is the father of lies. So anytime you tell a lie, you're dishonest. You manipulate. You lead somebody to believe something. That is not true. You are acting in the character of Satan because God tells the truth always. He is truth. And uh, just remember here that this uh, is, there are sins of omission and commission. There are some sins that I I sinned because I did it. I told a lie. But there are other times where sins of omission is, is I sinned because i knew they didn't do it and they're getting punished for it and i didn't say anything about it that's the sin of omission and so um, we are to protect the truth be people of the truth Um, number 10 and finally is um, do not you shall not covet and he gives a list if you're it's like well what am i not allowed to covet? you shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife, or his female, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey. It's kind of representation of all of the wealth of a person. And anything, or anything that is of your neighbors. And so you're like, oh, that wasn't on the list. Well, yeah, well, anything, anything that is your neighbor's. Um, so if all the other commands were commands against your actions, regarding your actions, what you do, this is the first command um, that touches your attitude, your heart, you covet. How How do you prove that somebody coveted? I mean, it's something that happens inside. Now, to covet means to desire, and to desire is not a bad thing, but this is the idea of desiring the wrong things. Desiring things that are not yours. Um, one of the reasons why we should not covet is because coveting takes away contentment. It takes away contentment. Philippians 4, Paul says, I have, learned, I have learned to be content, no matter my circumstances. Learn to be content. And we should too. 1 Timothy 6, 6-8 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And God's desire for us is to be content with what he has given us. I mean, we, more so in our time than any other time in history, we are bombarded there's entire industries called marketing that are trying to help you feel discontented so that you will want whatever they are trying to sell. And then we have you know, Instagram and, and social media where we are viewing everybody's highlight reel and it causes us, why don't I have a house like them? Why don't I have the car like they have? Why don't we go on vacations like they go on vacations? Why don't you buy me gifts for my birthday like she gets for her birthday? Why don't, like, we desire things that are not ours. And what that does is it tells God, you're not being good enough to me. God, you're not, you're not giving me what I deserve. It's discontent and coveting. Um, see, God desires for us not to be worried about acquiring temporary toys, but rather storing up uh, heavenly eternal treasures that's what he says in Matthew 6 verse 20 where he says lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there will your heart be also verse 33 he says but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you so here's the idea don't desire the things of earth don't desire these temporary toys right? Desire heavenly things. And he says, if you seek first the kingdom, if you desire God above all, he'll take care of all of your needs. And so as we kind of conclude our time, those are the Ten Commandments, okay? As we conclude our time, um, aren't you might ask, aren't Christians not under the law anymore? We spent an entire sermon on the law of Moses, on the Ten Commandments. Aren't Christians under the new covenant and not bound by any of that stuff anymore? I'll say, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, In a sense, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. That our relationship to the law is different than their relationship was. Uh, Matthew 5, 17 says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, Jesus says. I'm not coming to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus was the embodiment of the law, and he fulfilled it. He brought it into full color, what the law was supposed to look like. And then we have a new relationship with the law through Jesus, that we're no longer under the law like they were. Romans 10.4 says, "For, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So when we come to Christ, we are no longer under the law. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the Abrahamic covenant was an eternal covenant. He made everlasting promises to Abraham uh, and his offspring. But the Mosaic covenant is a temporary covenant, where he says, It's for the nation of Israel for this period of time between Moses and Christ. He says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. There's this new thing happening here. But the other thing we have to understand about the Ten Commandments is that it was essentially a summary of the entire Old Testament. It, It was hitting the broad categories for every other thing that would come underneath it. And nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated clearly in the New Testament. The Sabbath is the only one that is not repeated uh, in a a binding way in the New Testament. Um, And so one of the ways we know what Old Testament laws apply to New Testament Christians is which ones are reaffirmed as applying to New Testament Christians in the New Testament. And so nine of the 10 are in the New Testament. What we need to understand about the law is that God wants new hearts. um, And we shouldn't relate to the law as just a list of things that we must do to earn God's love. The Old Testament from this point on, they are, they are, um, God gives them these laws and they go and break them. And he gives them more laws and they break them. And he gives them more laws and they break them. And he gives them more laws and he break them. And he said the problem is that they have a hard heart have a hard heart. And so in the New Testament, Christ comes. He brings the ability for the Holy Spirit to come and transform the heart of people so that they no longer are just unable to live for God. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit. No longer are they fulfilling the law as some way to, to meet their end of the deal on this covenant with God. It's I, I do these things out of love for the Lord because he's revealed himself and what pleases Him. And I want to live to please Him. 1 John 5, 3 says, This is love for God. To obey His commands and His commands are not burdensome. The commands of God are not burdensome to the believer. They produce life in the believer because it's the best way to live. Um, we are almost out of time. I wanted to give you, if, if, you're, if you're willing, briefly in the next two minutes, what purpose does the law of of God serve in the life of the believer under the covenant of grace one pastor noted this first it's a compass it's a compass it helps you navigate through life it gives you your bearing Uh, these are the top categories in human life and so it helps me um, navigate through life it's a thermometer to gauge your love for God in John 14:15 Jesus said, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." In verse 23 he says, "If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And so uh, how am I doing? how 's my love for God and it just gives us a gauge for, for a thermometer for our love for God it 's a mirror. It, it reveals to us ourselves the things that i 've uh, broken, the, the, how sinful I really am. It shows how dirty I am. It brings me face to face with my guilt um, but it's a mirror, it's not, the law is a mirror, it's not soap. It's not soap. <clears throat> See, it's supposed to bring us to the soap. The washing of Christ, and then finally it's a road sign to point to Jesus. So it shows us our guilt, but then it points us to where we can go get clean. And uh, Galatians three twenty three says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed, So then the law was our guardian. Some of your translations say schoolmaster or tutor. So it was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So he says, hey, the the purpose of the law is to show you that you can't keep the law and to point you to the one who did and how he can wash away your sin and make up for your disobedience and your lack of fulfilling the law. And So yeah, we have a completely different relationship to the law than they did in the Old Testament, but ultimately it's to lead us to our need for the Savior, Jesus Christ. And He writes that law in our hearts, and He enables us to be obedient to Him. And so I hope today you would see this as a pointer to the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for our time in your word together today. Father, your law is beautiful and perfect and um, and a blessing. God, your your law instructs us with how uh, to live the best way possible to live in our human experience. But God, ultimately, I thank you that your law points us to our need for you, Jesus. And I pray that today, if anyone has not received the gift of a new life in Christ, no longer striving to please you, God, but just enabled by your Spirit to love you and live for you. I pray if anyone has not experienced that, today would be the day where your Holy Spirit transforms their heart from a a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Just soften it and move in there, God. Transform them. Give them new birth today. I ask you, Lord, in Jesus' name, to save someone in this place, and help us to love your law and your commands, and that we would love you through obedience to them, God. Help us, Jesus. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.